What is up guys, welcome to episode 47 of the Triage Method podcast. Today, we've got a little bit of a special edition in that it's just myself, Gary, that's going to be doing the podcast today. And the reason for that is because I had some engagements over the weekend, so I couldn't do our regular time yesterday on Saturday, and Paddy's studying for exams today on Sunday, so I said I would do this this evening and record a solo podcast so that we can still get some content out to you guys. So it's going to be a special episode in that we are doing a Q&A edition. So I asked for some questions on my personal Instagram. I probably should have asked them on the triage Instagram as well in hindsight, since you probably follow triage and not necessarily me. But regardless, we've got enough questions to get us through the episode and hopefully you will find some of them insightful. So I'm going to answer the questions one by one. I've got about eight here and I might go off on some tangents if I think the information is going to be useful or I might answer some other questions afterwards that I've got saved from other times that we've requested questions because I didn't really get that many um, when I just asked today. But regardless, we're going to go forward. I tend to ramble on a little bit, so I'm not going to say that it's it's definitely just going to be eight short, quick questions, and we'll hopefully get the hour out of this podcast. So question one was, are slip discs a real thing? So this is something you will probably have heard quite a bit about because everyone has heard of, you know, the kind of fear mongering around you're going to slip a disc if you do that or if you do this. Or you hear about someone that slipped a disc in the past and you know they had this severe pain and disability as a result of slipping that disc. And that terminology is one, incorrect, and two, very unhelpful. Because firstly, discs do not actually slip, okay? They're not these sort of vulnerable structures that just slip out of your spine and do some sort of damage. Instead, the disc is made up of a couple of different components, and we can simplify it down by thinking of the outside of the disc as being this robust, fibrous area, the annulus fibrosus, it's known as, and then inside you've got the nucleus pulposus, which is kind of a thick jelly-like substance, you could say. So you've got this robust structure that's enclosing this little bit of gel inside and they serve, you know, multiple functions, including giving you your height. So that's one of the things you see when, you know, people get older, you might see loss of loss of vertebral height because their discs are not quite as thick and maybe even their bones. But anyway, we needn't worry about that. Height isn't the most important thing, but they're also serving to, you know, support the spine, help with with the absorption of forces, and so on. But when it comes to actual pathology, people tend to think that these discs just slip out of place, whereas that's not really the case. They're, they're tied in pretty tight in there, and we, but we can have certain types of pathology, so certain types of injuries or things that we consider to be problematic. And some of the ones that you'll hear about most commonly are disc degeneration, for example. So that's when the disc is degenerating and that is something that is associated with normal aging. And the word degenerating obviously sounds very, very intimidating. But when we actually look at the research, you see that, you know, even 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 in a population of 20 year olds, so people that are quite young, 37 percent of them show signs of disc degeneration when they actually get an MRI. So that's in asymptomatic symptomatic people. So people who have no pain, no symptoms, and 37% of that population will have signs of disc degeneration on an MRI. So if you were to go to your healthcare provider and 
you know, you get a, you get an MRI and you see that you have disc degeneration, you know, sometimes you'll be told that you have the spine of an 80-year-old man. And that's not uncommon for people to be told that. And that's really kind of false because it is a normal part of aging. And yes, you may see certain signs more, like you may be more likely to see more of those signs on MRI in a person that is well-aged, but it is still very common in a young population. But most importantly, it's not necessarily associated with symptoms. So just because you have those signs does not mean that you're in pain. And hence, you cannot just establish a one-to-one causal relationship there between pathology and pain. So you can't just say that because someone disdegeneration that's giving them pain so that's one of the reasons you shouldn't really freak out if you have these things on your on your MRI um, obviously some things are more important than others and um, so it's not like scans are totally useless either it depends on the context but but to get back to the kind of point in relation to disdegeneration if you were to then look at an 80 year old sample you'd expect 96 percent of those people based on evidence from 2015 by Brinsky et al you'd expect 96 percent of those patients to present with signs of disc degeneration on MRI so when you're thinking about disc degeneration one of the one of the the ways you can look at it is as a normal normal sign of aging just like when your hair is going gray okay we don't freak out about that well well that's a lie some of us do but it isn't necessarily something that is harming us and it can just be a part of aging so that's not something you really need to freak out about so I'm going on a bit of a tangent here because I think the disc topic is important and we needn't just focus on, you know, the slipping of discs as in like it would not be helpful for me to just say, no, discs don't slip and then not elaborate on this whole kind of pain pathology relationship. So when it comes to, you know, the the disc degeneration thing, you're going to expect that on a good portion, a good proportion of MRIs, of scans and you shouldn't necessarily associate that with being a big problem that needs to be worried about, you know, if that's where you're coming from. And, you know, it's a very similar line of thinking when it comes to things like disc bulging or disc protrusion, which are kind of different different levels of a similar thing, okay? So when, when we're talking about disc bulging and disc protruding, we're talking about that nucleus, that gel-like substance we talked about, it's essentially that pushing out through or into the annulus fibrosis so as if it's pushing out in to that area of the disc okay and it can come to the point where that pushes all the way out and it sequestrates so it essentially comes out of the of the side of the of the annulus fibrosis and the thing with this is that even when you have these sorts of lesions where you've got you know that little bit of bulging or you've got that protruding those things can still resolve themselves so and and paradoxically i think when you actually look at the evidence it seems that the more severe that sort of that lesion actually is so the the more protrusion you've got going on when it sequestrates out it's more likely to actually resolve in those cases which is quite an interesting finding but yeah essentially you've 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 got you've got a lot of hope there in terms of like they do resolve themselves but also you've got this pain pathology relationship that's not so clear because you don't expect there to be a one-to-one relationship there between pain and pathology again because we see signs of disc bulging and disc protruding in asymptomatic people who do not have any pain. So again, they are things that you might expect. So from that same study, you've got 30% of 20-year-olds who are showing signs of disc bulging, so in that same sample, and 84% of 
80-year-olds. So as you can see, again, there's a relationship there between disc bulging and aging. And again, we've got that similar thing for disc protrusion, where we've got 29% of asymptomatic 20-year-olds showing signs of disc protrusion and 43% of 80-year-olds. So again, we see a similar trend. And what you should take away from that is not that these things just don't matter, okay? It's that there is not a one-to-one -one directly causal relationship there between those signs and pain or disability because you've got this large portion of the population without any symptoms who have these signs. And hence, when you're thinking about back pain, you need to look at the bigger picture and the risk factors that we actually see proposed for that. Um, that whole discussion about back pain is beyond the, the, the scope of this discussion, but to, to address the specific question that was asked, no, discs do not slip. They don't do so show different signs of pathology, and that might be different levels of, of bulging or protrusion, or it might be degeneration, and you can have some other things as well that, that it'll be classified as. But these things are not necessarily causative of you having symptoms, of you not being able to exercise, etc. It depends on the case, of course. You know, you can have certain cases where there's neurological compromise and those those will be dealt with by your healthcare provider and that's not the, the type of the type of advice to get from our podcast by any means. Um, but the point is no, they do not slip. That is uh, false and unhelpful terminology. And when you are thinking about these things, you know, if you do go to your doctor or you go to your physiotherapist and you, you know, you suspect or they suspect that, oh, you might have a bulging disc, that's something you should, you know, go with, you know, you should, you should l listen to them, you know, in terms of their advice, in terms of their, their expertise or whatever, but you shouldn't freak out and think that it's a very serious thing because I think that's something that really scares a lot of people. They worry that, you know, they're going to end up like the, their grand aunt that they heard about who slipped a disc and, you know, she couldn't walk and she ended up bed bound, etc. And those types of things can definitely, you know, make people quite fearful. And we know that those, those that, that fear of movement, that kind of catastrophizing um, fear avoidant behaviors, all of those psychological attributes they essentially do feed into you potentially having worse outcomes. So in an, in an ideal setting, you want to feel like you are as confident as possible about getting better. You want to feel positive about your situation. You don't want to be freaking out that it's a bad condition or that, you know, your pain is never going to go away um, because those things are probably going to put you in a worse position um, to, to, eventually, to eventually, you know, recover and get back to, to normal. So you want to be keeping those things in mind. So hopefully... <laughs> that that is a, a helpful answer in some way. Um, these discussions about pain and injury are never as simple as you would like them to be, okay? Because I think a lot of the time people want these these very simple answers. You know, I've got a bulging disc. What do I do? Oh, you do this exercise. It puts it back in place and it fixes it. Whereas when you've got when you've got these types of discussions going on, what I'm essentially adding to the to the equation here um, and what is a consensus among physiotherapists or at least the physiotherapists that are keeping up with the evidence base is that these things exist in a large portion of the population that are asymptomatic so we can't necessarily say that you know if you have this you should expect to have pain or disability and similarly if you come in with pain or disability we shouldn't expect you know you know if you are struggling with back pain it doesn't necessarily mean that 
it is the disc bulge that is the cause of that and the thing that needs to be addressed because it could be the case that that disc bulge or that disc degeneration has actually been present on your MRI for 20 years and it's just now that you're experiencing back pain and it could be for you know totally separate reasons that are not necessarily uh, biomechanically related to the disc so the, the, the discussion becomes a little bit more complicated and that's why you know physiotherapists are professionals and why you should be you know going to your physiotherapist trusting that you know if they do give you a, a discussion like this that doesn't seem like oh, as simple as you'd like um, appreciate that it's in good faith but anyway hopefully that helps you a little bit and the second question um, is do you have any advice for combining resistance training and endurance training um, I've generalized those statements because the initial question was about you know training for hypertrophy so training for building muscle and doing running okay and that was asked with reference to the fact that I've been doing a lot more running lately and I've been doing more kind of endurance type training while still keeping up resistance training. So in terms of giving you specific advice here, instead of going through like, you know, all the research, all the potential interactions and the adaptations between endurance and resistance training, etc. Um, instead, what I'm going to kind of give you is practical advice that that I suppose I, I, I would try and take on board myself when putting those things together. And the first thing that you want to realize is that just because types of exercise um, are different, it does not mean that they do not interfere with each other in some way, okay? Because while a lot of people will freak out that if you do the two together, you're going to get no gains, um, other people will think that they can do resistance training and endurance training and do a standard program of both as if you were doing them in isolation, okay? And that's where it becomes problematic on the on the other side of things. And and you know that was that was even you know a problem in in the eighties when this this research on the kind of interference effect between resistance training and endurance training first kind of started because one of the first studies on this topic that kind of sparked this whole you know craze around people being real worried about losing their gains if they were doing cardio essentially what happened was you had three groups of subjects in the study and one group was just doing their six days of resistance training one group was just doing their six days of endurance training and the combined group were doing six days of combined resistance training and endurance training so they were doing both protocols so it wasn't like there was a you know slight reduction in volume in both groups when they were combined instead it was that literally the two programs were thrown together and then essentially what you saw in that study was that towards the end of the trial period which i believe was 12 weeks um i read that study for the last time months ago so i'm not going to be very confident in that but as far as i recall it was from weeks 10 to 12 that the strength gains actually declined slightly in the combined group and even you know intuitively you would expect that based on your any rudimentary knowledge of training you might expect that if you were to do two intense protocols like that that after a while uh, you may not get the same level of gains you know that, that would kind of be expected because not only are you you know just training you know your whole body um in a very intense manner in two different ways but you also have to consider like the nutrition aspect of that in that 
you are not, it's it's not just like your body is a, a fixed system and it's like oh yeah here you go I've got this body I can just kind of train it as much as it wants um, in this research study and this is just a training study it's like no nutrition needs to be taken into account there as well so we can't just look at training adaptations without considering the overall energy balance of the system so for example if we're looking at a combined endurance and resistance training program then you would expect that there's going to be more nutrition um, that that is standardized in that study and that you'd want the subjects to be consuming adequate calories so that they're not in negative energy balance um, which is likely if they don't do not make a conscious effort to change their diet um, so that that that's a, a really important thing to keep in mind so with all of that in mind th- those drawbacks of that study what I would be saying to people to start off with is to remember that you cannot just expect to do two combined programs immediately okay that that's not what you should be thinking about doing so I'll take it as as the person who, let's say you're doing four to five days of resistance training at the moment, right? You're doing a certain number of sets per body part per week. Um, You can calculate that out based on the training program or programs that you've been following over the last, say, three to six months, because that's probably reflective of your current, you know, level of tolerance. So then what you want to do, if you are adding in endurance training, you can start off by adding in a little bit, you know. So if if you want to just, you know, get to the point where you're training for, let's say, a 10K, 20K, half marathon, right? Half marathon is kind of fair enough for most people, right? Let's say you're going for that. That's the goal. Then you'd start off by adding in a couple of very easy days and maybe just pull back the intensity of the resistance training a little bit. So, for example, on one day, you might have now a a day where you just have a almost like a deload where you have low relative effort you're staying a good few reps from failure you're just kind of greasing the groove with your technique instead of having an, a real fatiguing day and you're making room in your training capacity recovery capacity for the additional endurance training and then you kind of see how you get on you know because I'm, I'm 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 telling you this as under the assumption that you're going to go away and try and manage this yourself so you bring down your resistance training slightly and you add in the endurance training. Instead of just adding in loads of it, you add in a small bit. So you just drip feed it. For example, let's say you're just doing three by 30 minute moderate intensity runs per week. Let's say that's just, you know, arbitrary. And you may not even have to reduce your resistance training intensity or resistance training intensity or volume to be able to, to tolerate that. Um, and you may just be able to bring it in straight away and it might be okay, you know, that, that, that might be fine. But we're just being conservative here and saying that, you know, you might have to bring it back a little bit. And then as you take that goal more seriously over time, you reduce your re- resistance training volume a little bit because what you have to realize is that there's a level of volume somewhere in space, in time, um, that you that you can essentially maintain your muscle mass at. So that, but that level of volume might change over time, but there's a certain level of volume that's required for you to kind of maintain your muscle, all right? And that's gonna be significantly lower than the amount you've been training at to really try and gain as much muscle as possible. Those things, there's generally a, a significant gap there and it takes a lot less to maintain than it does to gain. So that's, that, that's the big thing about this. You do have to be willing to accept some sort of trade-off. And hence, if you are reducing resistance training to allow you to do more endurance training, then you accept the trade-off that you might gain a little bit less muscle. And I think that's, that's appropriate for someone who's trying to achieve two different things at once. So that's a, a pretty fair trade-off. And then from there, over time, you start to just adjust your training volume for both for both types of exercise in line with the stage 
at which you were at in your, your training course. So for example, if you are six months out from a half marathon that you plan on running, then you'd be doing more resistance training then and more challenging resistance training then than in the month before your half marathon. So that's where periodization comes in. So you essentially have periods of the year where you're focusing more on your strength or hypertrophy goals, and then you have periods of the year where you're focused more on your endurance goals. And essentially, you move one dial up and pull the other dial back a little bit, um, depending on what stage of the year that is. And I think that's a good way of sort of conceptualizing what we're trying to apply here and then that sort of brings us to the discussion about nutrition and you know this this sort of adds in another point that Paddy wrote about earlier in the week in terms of having asterisk goals okay so you know people will say oh, I want to build as much muscle as possible with the asterisk that I also want to run a half marathon and I also want to stay as lean as possible and actually get leaner. I want to lose body fat. And it's like, this is where it becomes difficult, okay? Because we've already accepted there's good, that there's going to be some sort of trade-off in terms of muscle or strength gain if you're really training hard for, for endurance training. Um, and likewise, you may have to accept some sort of trade-off for your endurance gains if you're still training hard at resistance training. So there's going to be a trade-off there depending on how much of your, your resources you're willing to allocate to either of those things, okay? So you can't be the best at both, but you can get good progress in both for sure. Um, and then, you know, as I, was, as I was just alluding to, that's where nutrition becomes important because you don't want to be the person who's also trying to diet while chasing both of these goals, okay? Unless you're willing to accept the trade-offs that come with that, in which case it's totally appropriate, you know? But if you want to be able to do both of those things, you do want to make sure that you are at least at the level of calories that is required for you to maintain your body weight. And I would even say to, to try and be a little bit overzealous and be in a slight surplus because it's probably a better idea to overshoot than to undershoot on a consistent basis. Um, because at least if you're overshooting, you're giving yourself the resources you need to be able to adapt optimally, especially when it comes to resistance training in terms of adding extra muscle mass. Um, so if you're training for hypertrophy and endurance training and you're not in a calorie surplus, you're obviously reducing your chances of building muscle significantly. So I would try to be in a calorie surplus there if possible. So they would probably be the biggest things I would focus on. So I would be thinking about what sort of trade-off I'm willing to accept in both of those areas. That would be the first thing. And I mean, the trade-off may not even be that significant for you in terms of like, you know, if you are someone who's just trying to run a 10K I think you can do that without even having to trade off any of your gains, or at least a lot of people could probably do that because it's not that significant that it requires you to allocate lots and lots of training time and effort to go and achieve that. Whereas if it's like a marathon or more or more intense than that, it's very likely that there will be some sort of trade off in gains in that it's unlikely you can do marathon training and optimal bodybuilding training you know it's possible for some genetic freaks for sure but are you going to get every last one percent of your gains in both arenas probably not so accept the trade-off then be willing to adjust the dials at different time points in the year so that what that means is that you will focus on one of those goals more than the other depending on where you are relative to to where you know you need to be able to perform optimally so 
for example if it is that marathon goal and it's in the summer then you might taper off your resistance training as you come towards the summer and then ramp up the resistance training again as it go as you, as you go into the winter and that's an appropriate way of doing that and then the other side of things is to be thinking about your nutrition and making sure that you are actually supporting the training that you're doing and obviously there are more specifics here that we could talk about and we could probably do a whole podcast on this it might actually be a good episode let me know if you'd be interested in that and maybe patty and i could do like a a, a concurrent training podcast because i think that'd be useful we could discuss some more of the research and I'd, I'd enjoy doing that podcast so for now let's let's leave it at that at that and move on to question three so the next question was in relation to there was actually two questions on this so i've just kind of put it into one um on myo reps slash rest pause training okay so when we're talking about rest pause training we're generally talking about some sort of you know some sort of of method of extending the set by you know reaching the end of your working set so for example let's say you do 10 10 reps on a leg press then you put the weight down for a fixed period of time or a fixed number of breaths or however the person you know however that you actually implement it so for example let's say you rest for 10 seconds at the end of your set and then you go back in and you try and get five more reps let's say or, or until you hit failure and then you could do that again so you might do two rounds of rest pause okay so that's essentially what you're what you're the way you're applying it so you're doing a certain amount of reps in your set you're hitting the end of the set you're resting a little bit and then you're going again trying to get a little bit a little bit more and this can certainly be an, certainly be an effective tool and both of the questions here were aiming were aimed at you know is this effective for um reduce it or, or on isolation exercises rather that was one of them and i think the other one was a, a, related to being in a, a time crunched situation and th- those are pretty much the exact ways that i like to program rest pause for clients so what i'll say is that you know on the isolation exercises or the these we call them the smaller exercises toward the end of the workout because they're they're not isolation exercises in that you're never ever really isolating one muscle in the human body um, because it's just not the way it works at all um, but we call them single joint and even that is debatable like you can get real nuanced on this and like they're not single joint exercises either but you know what I mean when I'm talking about them <laughs> so for example a bicep curl let's say um, you know if, if you want if you want to be pedantic all right a bicep curl is not a single joint um exercise because your radial ulnar joint is is moving um as is your elbow joint potentially even your shoulder joint potentially your wrist joint you know so there's lots going on but forget the semantics for the moment all right <laughs> um, you know what i'm talking about the the exercises that don't tend to require as much um vigor let's say you know you don't require as many muscle groups to work as hard as possible you don't have to psych yourself up um and it's generally those exercises that they're less technically demanding as well and they're the types of exercises that i like to apply rest pause so for example if we do think about a bicep curl you might do a set of 10 you know you're hitting you're getting close to failure then you try and bump out five more reps after 10 seconds then you rest again and then you try and get three more reps um after 10 seconds and then you kind of end the set there. So essentially the goal here is to get to a point where you are fatigued toward the end of the set and then you add in a few more reps while you're still in that fatigued state. And this has the potential to be beneficial for hypertrophy because you're doing more work in that fatigued state um, without the same amount of time, the amount, the same amount of time that's invested. And personally, I think it's a good strategy for people who are stuck for time, but 
I also think it can be very fatiguing, so you have to be careful, so to speak. All right, you know, resistance training isn't that risky, but when I say careful, you know, you don't want to go from four straight sets of 10 to four sets of 10 with rest pause at the end of every set, okay? Because that's the way I see it applied sometimes. The goal of rest pause should be to reduce your overall volume. So if you're doing four sets of 10 normally, what you might do is I'm going to do two sets of rest paused um, sets. So for example, what you might be doing is a set of 10 and then you rest and then you do five more all the way to failure. And then you do 10 reps in your next set. And again, you go all the way to failure and get another five reps, let's say. And while you're only getting 30 total reps there versus the 40 reps, those reps have the potential to at least be equal on a hypertrophic basis, okay? Because essentially what you're looking at is the number of, you know, it's, it sounds quite bro science but the number of really difficult reps that were performed. So the number of reps that were performed under a state of fatigue in which potentially more motor units were being recruited and where the velocity at which you were moving the weight was slowing down because you were challenged. And if you were in that state where you've got a slow velocity of movement and because you're being challenged and you've also got a full spectrum or at least a lot of motor units being recruited and um, that is potentially going to lead to just as much hypertrophy even though the reps aren't actually being matched and that discussion about the amount of hypertrophy per rep is a complicated one and one that is not you know totally clear but I don't think you need to worry about the specifics of you know what rep what, what, what how much hypertrophy you get per rep because essentially a rep is a an arbitrary measure of what is actually going on as in you know you can get hypertrophy by not doing any reps in that you could just hold a load in place for a long enough period of time since you are still putting uh, your muscles under tension um, with a load so you could say that oh I performed zero reps and then it's a little bit less clear exactly you know what we were talking what we are talking about so talking about just reps in isolation is not all that helpful and you need to kind of open up the discussion in terms of you know how difficult were those reps you know what was the percentage of your one rep max but not just that like also like how how difficult were they in terms of relative intensity so is it is it a rep that is one from failure is it a rep that is six from failure they're likely to lead to different outcomes in terms of adaptation so you know the, the conversation about reps is just a little bit more complicated and needs to go beyond just how many total reps you complete because that's fairly meaningless in a lot of cases unless you're standardizing for a lot of variables all right so are, are, is it a useful tool, myo reps or rest pause um, type types of interventions for sure, um, or at least I at least at least I think it's a a good option for some exercises. Now, is it useful in all cases? Maybe not. Okay, so if you're going to use like a rest pause intervention or rest pause style of performing your reps for something like a deadlift. I wouldn't be too into that just because of the amount of fatigue that you are generating when you do a deadlift. And the same could be said for a squat. Like I wouldn't really be encouraging people very often to opt for like a heavy set of five and then rest and then do three more and then rest and then do two more just because the amount of fatigue that you're generating because you're training so many muscle groups and because there's quite a tough psychological challenge there as well. Um, that is going to beat you up for quite a while. 
And hence, you know, I would be keeping it to exercises that are more easily controlled, I guess, less technically demanding. Um, so machine-based exercises, um, single joint exercises, you know, with the caveat that we already discussed that it's not so simple as just single joint. <laughs> um, so things like bicep curls, um, lateral raises, etc. So, you know, those kind of simpler exercises that you probably know by intuition, um, but that semantically we'd have to break down and define a little bit better. Um, so yeah, you know that that's that's hopefully uh, hopefully gives you some insight into how and when rest pause should be used, and you know it, it goes without saying that you don't just apply this to all of your exercises either, because as we said, if you just start doing rest pause after all of your sets and all of your exercises, um, you're gonna be pretty damn fatigued. So when you are applying it, the goal will be to do it while reducing the number of sets. If you're trying to just keep time consistent in the gym or if you're trying to use it as a means of increasing the hypertrophic stimulus because you're you're not growing you're not gaining muscle um you feel like your 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 training isn't that difficult at the moment then you could add it in to your standard number of set uh, number of sets that you're already doing all right so Next up, question four, is alcohol in a gaining phase question mark? So my assumption here is that is there an effect, negative one, I assume, of consuming alcohol on gaining muscle? Um, the answer is yes. And, you know, the most the, the most clear example of this is at the extreme levels where, you know, you have alcoholics, where you get alcohol-induced myopathy. Um, and it, it's, not, it's not a good time, man. You know, it's not a good time for your gains if you're going to be drinking lots and lots of alcohol. But obviously... This is a spectrum and there's no need to create a sort of, you know, false dichotomy here where we say it's just all or nothing, all, all alcohol or no alcohol and we just compare those two things because obviously there's a spectrum here. Um, so should you be looking to keep alcohol to a minimum? Probably if you're looking to optimize your gains because it is likely that it's not going to allow you to gain as much muscle by affecting things like muscle protein synthesis, um, for example. So you basically want to ask yourself, what, what, what are my social goals? And that sounds really silly, but you know, what, what trade-off am I willing to accept in terms of my social life, in terms of the things that I actually enjoy for my gains? And also, what sort of trade-offs am I willing to accept in my gains in the gym um, to allow me to reach the, the, the level of a social life, the level of social engagement, the level of drinking beer <laughs> that I actually enjoy, okay? And, and you know, this, this, this needn't be something that you ask yourself if you just like to have a couple of beers a week. Like, realistically, that's not a big problem, okay? If you're just having, like, a beer or two on a Saturday night, you have, like, a, a drink midweek, I wouldn't be worried about that at all. But if you're someone that goes binge drinking two to three days per week, that's where it becomes problematic because obviously there's a training session before or after at least one, if not more, of those drinking sessions. So if you're training one day and then you you know go drinking that night, that's going to affect not only your sleep, um, which affects your recovery, but also is going, might affect the anabolic processes um, and potentially even your appetite going into the next day and your willingness to train going into the next day. So they're the things that you sort of have to keep in mind. So I would be trying to keep alcohol to a minimum, um, but a minimum, you know, within reason, as in I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that having a couple of beers a week is a problem. Um, 
there is evidence to suggest that very high levels of alcohol is probably problematic. Um, so I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be excusing binge drinking um, as a means of getting in calories by any means because I think this is this is sort of where the perspective of you know just viewing nutrition in terms of energy content in terms of calories and macronutrients where it becomes problematic because people think because they're in a gaining phase they can just you know go binge drinking and that's fine because all they view is weight up or weight down or calories up or calories down not recognizing that binge drinking is having a negative negative effect on your health um, and a negative effect on your actual muscle gains so if you are in a calorie surplus it doesn't justify binge drinking and you are essentially still taking away from your gains, your strength gains, your muscle gains, your performance by going binge drinking, especially if you're doing that regularly. Now, does that mean you can't go to a wedding every now and then and, you know, get a little bit messed up? That's up to you. It's totally fine. It's not going to have a significant effect on your gains over a long period of time. But if you're doing it weekly, you know, you're very regularly binge drinking, then it is going, there is going to be a trade-off there. But maybe that is worth it for you. And that's something that we talk about all the time. You have to identify exactly what type of life you want to live, what you actually value, and then you make the decisions um, as to what health-related behaviors you're willing to engage in or what ones you're not willing to engage in. Because I think that's a discussion we're not willing to have a lot of the time in the fitness industry and in that we just assume that people want to do everything that they can to optimize their health. And this is something I try to get across to my clients all the time. Like, you don't have to have that mindset. Like, I don't have that mindset. Like, I don't want to do everything I can to optimize my health. The, re- the reason being because the trade-off in terms of doing the other things in life that I actually enjoy is not worth it, okay? So, you know, there comes a point where taking very specific supplements in the hope that it supports some sort of specific metabolic function and you're hoping that's going to help you with longevity because it's been shown in a rat study it's like you know that's fine but considering like you 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 mightn't even wear like a helmet when you cycle a bike like there are much more important things for longevity you know so you have to keep that in mind you have to keep in mind what exactly these specific things, what, what exact effects these things are having on your health. And if, you know, if you're spending like 100 euros on supplements that haven't really been shown to do all that much in humans, um, in terms of things you'd really care about, and you're taking them every month, it's like, I'm not sure, like, what, 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 what is that trade-off actually worth it? And the same could be said for the types of foods that you eat, in that, you know, I went out with my girlfriend last night, and I had pizza and a beer. And it's like, oh, God, the the processed meats on that pizza, oh my god, all that saturated fat and all that alcohol. It's like you can freak out about that stuff, but you what you have to realize is that nutrition and training, etc., is about looking at the averages over a period of time. So you wanna look at, you know, what is my if, if someone was to take a month of my eating, um, track it all, you know, look at it all um qualitatively in terms of the foods consumed and quantitatively in terms of the specific amounts of uh, calories, macronutrients, micronutrients, etc. Like, what would their mean day of eating that they take from that sample look like? So, what what is your average? You know, and then that that's what really matters. So, for example, if if it's a thirty day period and I have one pizza in that thirty day period, um, 
then that pizza becomes very irrelevant because there's only one thirtieth of that pizza being factored into my average day of eating, if you wanted to think of it like that. Um, so that's the way I like to view nutrition and the, like to, the way I like to view health behaviors in general um, because when you break down those isolated, um, those isolated indulgences, they don't mean as much over time as long as you're being adherent to health behaviors on average. And that's why I try to get clients out of the extreme mindset of focusing on being 100% all in all the time um, because very often that all in mindset tends to come with periods of being all off. So people will have weekends where they just, you know, totally splurge, binge loads, do no training, do no activity at all. And then when you actually average that out over the course of their month or over the course of their week, it looks very similar to the person who's willing to allow themselves small amounts of indulgences more regularly. Um, So that's why looking at nutrition, looking at health in terms of averages is very important from my perspective. So alcohol in the gaining phase, is it going to affect it? Yes, um, but the effect that that, that it is going to have is going to lie somewhere on a spectrum. So... Question five is, do you think some people can't get stronger? And the answer to this is no, I don't think some people can't get stronger. And the reason for this is because it's, it's been demonstrated in the populations that you might expect to gain no strength, even, even the elderly. So what you can see in the elderly who, are, who, who suffer, um, so to speak, from what you might call anabolic resistance in that they are more resistant to the process of anabolism of gaining muscle than younger folks. Um, we see that in the elderly, yet when they are dosed with an appropriate amount of resistance training and an appropriate amount of protein, they do still gain muscle and strength. Okay, So that's an important thing to keep in mind because I think they're the probably the best population to answer that question um, in. So does that mean every elderly person gains muscle at the same or gains muscle or strength at the same rate? Absolutely not. And the same goes for younger folks. And that's why you have to be thinking of things in terms of responses to training lying somewhere on a spectrum some some people are going to be outliers in a positive direction in terms of gaining ridiculous amounts of strength very very quickly and some folks are going to be you know lower down on that spectrum in terms of gaining very little strength or not gaining any strength on that same specific program and the research on this extends also into other you know fitness attributes including vo2 max which is a a marker of your cardiorespiratory fitness cardiovascular fitness aerobic fitness whatever way you want to think about it um so that it essentially extends into that field as well where we see varying levels of responses but what you see then in the non-responder literature is that when people are exposed to different training programs so for example maybe the program is just underdosed as in if you apply a training stimulus to a population of people and let's say it's 10 sets per muscle or per exercise per week um Maybe you'll get you'll get a spectrum of responses, so everyone will lie somewhere on that response curve, and maybe you'll have some people that didn't respond at all. But if you were to then push them up to twelve to fifteen sets per per exercise per week, um, it might be the case that they then respond. So you have to think of it in terms of you know it's it's not just you you don't just not respond, you don't respond to a specific stimulus at a specific period in time um, under the constraints of a specific measurement. And that is important as well, the specific measurement that you're actually using. Because 
that's something that has come up in the literature recently and um, that I've been trying to kind of keep up on. Uh, um, I think there was a paper in the, what's it called? The Medicine, Science, Sports, Exercise, um, M- the MSSE journal, that's what I know it as. Um, but there was a paper in there anyway, um, basically looking at some of the potential methodological and statistical flaws when identifying non-responders. Um, so, so it's not even as simple as just they're not responding to the specific program. It may also be that the way we're looking at it in terms of um, the, the methods applied in sports science research, and they're not set up optimally for us really to be able to tease out the specific responses of different people um, and that we may be identifying people as non-responders when really that's not exactly the case. And I think you know one example of how that might apply would be, for example, if you were to start a, an eight-week resistance training program and on week one, when you were tested on the, the squat, let's say, you had a super day. You know, you just had a day where you were just feeling amazing and when you performed the squat, you know, you squatted 100 kilos. And then over the course of the eight-week program, you felt good, you felt good, you felt, you know, things were going really well. But because the training was so intense, you know, by the, by the end of week eight, you were feeling kind of, kind of beat up. And by the end of week eight, when you went in to do the retesting at the end of the eight week phase, you know, you did a hundred kilos again and you felt like you'd more in you, but you were just too beat up in the day, too fatigued. You know, you didn't sleep so well the night before training had been really difficult and you had lots of fatigue. And hence, it's not exactly an accurate representation of how you respond to that training program. Um, but, but that's the, the research specific discussion. <coughs> Excuse me. And to bring it back to, to practice, can, do some people just not get stronger? No. Some people don't get stronger in a specific period of time on a specific program when measured in a certain way. That's the best way I would probably try to think about it. And if I wasn't getting stronger and I had been doing the same thing for a long period of time, I wouldn't be sort of victimizing myself by saying, oh, I just can't gain strength. I would be saying that there's something that I'm doing or not doing that is leading me to have poor responses um, to training at the moment and hence I need to change something. So that's sort of the answer to the question. Um, how you go about you know, adjusting that depends on exactly what you're doing. But that would be the answer. I don't think there are people who just don't gain strength um, unless like in, in specific disease states, of course, and specific outliers, but not people in the general population. It's very unlikely that someone is incapable of increasing their strength um, at all. Okay, so hopefully that helps a little bit. And we've been going for quite a while now. I'm not sure of the exact time, but I think it's like 40 or 50 minutes at least. But we've got a couple of more questions. The next one is winged scapula rehab techniques. And this is a bit of a loaded one again. This is this is a discussion that's very similar to the one that we had at the start about slipped discs, okay? Because winged scapula and the sort of discussion around scapular dyskinesis in general. So, you know, when the scapula just isn't really moving well. And the reason I bring that into it is because when we talk about you know, winged scapula, the person asking this question might be talking about the way their scapula seems to look visually when they're moving or whatever. And, and, you know, we'd have to define exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about when we're talking about winged scapula. And that same thing applies to scapular dyskinesis. You know, I discussed there about how that it refers to when the scapula just doesn't move well. But how do you even define that? Like what is moving well? And 
the reason this is important is because, again, there isn't this one-to-one relationship between so-called pathology and pain and that we can't just say that because the way someone's scapula moves looks weird to us that that is a problem okay because i think this freaks out a lot of people you know they see that their shoulders move a little bit weird and they think it's an immediate problem and you know if you look into the research on this you'll see that in in swimmers you know that there was there was a study done in swimmers where you know, you, you measure or you, you essentially gauge the way, you know, what their scapular, what their scapular kinematics or scapular movement is like before they're fatigued from swimming. And then you look at it after they're fatigued and you, you start to get this presentation of scapular dyskinesis where there's sort of this abnormal, quote unquote, abnormal movements of the scapula in a state of fatigue. And hence, like that makes it a little bit more of a difficult discussion because it's not so clear, you know, what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about scapular dyskinesis, because, you know, it might be the case that at the end of my workout, when I'm really fatigued, that my shoulders just don't move in the same way that they did at the beginning of the workout, for whatever reason, um, that my, my motor control system has decided to change the way that they are moving at that point in time. Does that mean that it's a pathological problem that needs to be addressed or fixed not necessarily and that's that's the reason all of that is important and and that that again could be a podcast of its own and i'm just kind of skimming over it really quickly to make the points that one so-called abnormal movement of the scapula is not easy to define and is it actually problematic potentially and again like this this is why it, it, it becomes important to discuss these things with a healthcare professional in person because what you define as scapular winging could be very different to what a healthcare professional might actually define it as so for example you you might have had like a traumatic injury that has led to you know genuine compromise of the neural structures the nervous structures that are responsible for innervating those muscles and you've got so quote-unquote paralysis of those muscles so like those muscles literally mightn't even be doing their job and hence you could have this sort of presentation in that case so whether whether it's just a a sort of cosmetic thing where you're like oh my scapula doesn't really look like it's properly in place or whether it's like genuinely muscles like not doing their job and you're having difficulty like lifting up your arm because of it they're two different discussions and hence that's why i would encourage you to actually you know if you've got a genuine problem then you go and you see a physiotherapist um, and that you don't just request information online but you know it can be the case where someone just has asymmetric movement from left to right and it mightn't be any problem at all and it might just be in a certain position during a certain exercise that you feel like your your shoulder kind of moves in a certain way that doesn't look perfect to you and those things aren't always problematic so in this specific case i can't tell you whether or not this is something that needs fixing and whether or not this is something that that even is a problem in the first place and you know that's the difficult thing about asking for help online with any problem because you kind of come to the floor with an acceptance that oh this is a problem whereas that's often not the case you know a lot of a lot of people you know just 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 come with a a notion that that something is problematic because they've read about it somewhere online or they or they've heard about it from a friend or because it doesn't look quote unquote normal 
Whereas if you were to actually go to a professional, they might be like, you know what, we actually see this in lots of people um, and it doesn't seem like they have bad outcomes because of it. You're not in any pain at the moment. So just because there's a little bit of asymmetry between left and right, that's not something we really need to worry about. So, you know, see a professional, see how you get on. And, you know, if you have a more specific you know, discussion that you'd like to have, then feel free to message me because it might be the case that, oh, you know, Gary, at the top of my bench press, I feel that my scapula moves in this way and that's the real problem. So maybe we could, you know, adjust some things there. Um, But yeah, I I don't want to to kind of assume a specific position on anything without knowing the full story, especially because this is a podcast and not designed for specific one-to-one advice, but hopefully that helps. So, one last question, and that you'd be surprised how hard this thing is to do on your own because I haven't had a drink of water or anything, and my, my mouth's just getting so dry. But <laughs> question seven is about running with load, and this is going to be a relatively quick answer. But this was asked by a soldier, so a member of our defense forces. Salute to you, brother. And he asked about is, is there any harmful effects of running with load? So, obviously, because he's in the defense forces, one of the things that they tend to engage in is weighted activity so running with weighted vests because obviously that replicates um any sort of situation on the battlefield so if you're going to be you know out patrolling in wherever you're going to have a heavy bag with you they tend to be quite heavy a lot of the time even the gear in and of itself without the bag is heavier than normal clothing depending on like where you're patrolling obviously like this isn't my area of expertise man and obviously like the, the Irish army like you're not you mightn't be doing like serious missions where you're carrying like fucking 40 grenades or anything but anyway irrelevant for now regardless the dude is training with weighted vest he's worried he's saying you know is this something that i can do long term and without it being a problem and the question or the answer is yes so you can do pretty much i'm gonna say i'm gonna just no instead of saying you can do anything i'm gonna say i am very optimistic about what humans can tolerate I think a lot of people are pessimistic about what we're capable capable of and how robust and resilient we actually are. I'm very optimistic about that. And hence, I wouldn't be worried about you running with a weighted vest and that being harmful, you know, because what you have to realize is that there are there's a significant difference in a 60 kilo person going out running on the road and a 100 kilo person going out running on the road. Like if they're the same height and they have roughly the same bone structure, one person is doing that with 40 kilos, 40 kilos of extra mass on their body. And granted, some of that is lean mass that they're, they're going to be using to actually you know, ca- help with carrying out that task. But let's say it's just fat mass. That's basically inert weight that they're having to carry around with them that isn't ha- serving any contractile function and that it's not allowing them to move any better. So that person who's, who's 100 kilos and they've got all that extra fat mass they're not necessarily going to be harmed by going running because of their extra mass. It just means that that that, that they have a that their their level of tolerance is going to be specific to what they're actually doing. So, for example, if you are going running without any weighted vest, then you may normally be able to tolerate. Let's say, let's just say, ten k is your normal pace your normal duration before you begin to get totally gassed all right whereas with your weighted vest it might be the case that 5k is your normal duration or distance rather what am i saying duration distance 
before you get totally gassed, okay? So you've got a specific level of tolerance based on that, and hence, you just work within that. So you think of it a bit like weight training. So, you know, you, you wouldn't say that, all right, my one rep max is 100 kilos. I normally train with 60 kilos. Is it harmful if I train with 80 kilos more often? It's like, no, because you just adjust your relative effort um, based on the load that you're actually lifting. So if you're doing, you know, 80 kilos for sets of five and you normally do 60 kilos for sets of 10, then there's a difference in the number of reps that you're doing because you're adjusting your reps based on the level of relative relative intensity or effort that goes into those sets. So 80 kilos for sets of five could be two to three reps from failure for you and 60 kilos for 10, for 10, for 10, 10 could, could be two to three reps from, from failure for you. They are different stimuli. They're similar in terms of the actual, you know, effort that you're putting into it. So you can sort of adopt a similar mindset when you're thinking about this running. So if you're going doing, you know, a 20 kilo weighted run, what you don't want to do is go out and try and run the same distance or at the same pace that you normally would without a weighted vest, okay? So you have to be smart about it. You have to think, what can I currently tolerate? And hence, I start there with what I can currently tolerate and I nudge that up over time. And as you begin to do that, you develop a higher level of tolerance, a higher level of fitness, for that specific task and hence you're not at risk because you're building up tolerance for it. So I don't think people should be thinking of injury in terms of, oh no, there's high forces, I'm going to get injured. Instead, I would be thinking of, all right, there's high forces, but I've also got a high level of tolerance because I've trained myself to tolerate this, all right? So that that's the way I like to think about injury and I would always be optimistic when it comes to any sort of task and I wouldn't be saying that any activity is inherently injurious. You know, people always say about CrossFit and things like that. They say, oh, CrossFit's going to get you injured. It's like, no, just like any other activity, CrossFit may increase your risk of injury if you do it inappropriately at levels of, of volume that you're, you don't have tolerance for, um, at levels of intensity that you don't have tolerance for currently and over a period of time without rest you know so if you're not taking any rest you're constantly training seven days per week and you're constantly trying to do more and more and more of course that increases risk of injury and that's you know independent of the actual sport you're talking about we see that consistently across lots of different sports so i would i would encourage you to adopt that sort of mindset of movement optimism to quote greg layman um movement optimism you should be a movement optimist you should be optimistic about the positions that the human body can get into about the things that we can tolerate um but but doing so while also realizing that we have to keep an eye on our different sort of measures of training load you know so if you're if you're if you're using things like session rpe for example you don't want to go from doing you know, five out of 10 sessions, all right? So you're, you're normally doing like, let's say three sessions at a five out of 10 session RPE. So session rate of perceived exertion, meaning that it's as difficult as about a five out of 10. <laughs> so you don't want to go from doing that to doing like six, 10 out of 10 sessions. Like that doesn't make sense. So over time, you gradually increase your efforts on any specific task. You're going to build extra tolerance and hence it's not inherently harmful. So... <coughs> With a dry mouth, I would like to bring this episode to a close. Hopefully you found something helpful. Um, and if you do have any further questions or anything you disagree with me on, then please feel free to let me know. Um, because, you know, some of those things I skimmed over. Um, some of those things require a more 
you know, in-depth discussion, you know, particularly around alcohol, you know, in terms of how it affects, let's say, muscle protein balance. You can get deep into the weeds there. Similarly, like the winged scapula discussion, you can get deep into, you know, different ways of measuring um, scapular dyskinesis, whether they're valid, whether they're, whether they're reliable. You know, there was a new study that came out on that just today, actually. Um, you know, you can look at the, the research around rest, pause training, etc., etc. So you can go deep into all of these different areas. So do give feedback on the podcast. And if there's anything that you know you particularly enjoyed any discussion that you particularly enjoyed that I had today then maybe you might want to request it as a specific podcast topic and we'd be more than happy to make that happen as always in the description below what you'll find is a link to submit questions for free articles or podcasts meaning that you can submit a question that we will then choose as a topic for the podcast or a free article so you get to decide what we actually talk about so with that in mind, I'm going to close off this podcast by answering one more question, which is from Becca Dunn. Why is Paddy back on Insta? And I don't know. I think he just couldn't handle the FOMO, the fear of missing out. <laughs> um, but yeah, guys, thanks very much for listening. Um, as always, you know, our group coaching and one-to-one coaching services are open. So if you'd like to get involved in that, they'll be linked in the description below as well. And, you know, as always, I hope you have an amazing week. I hope you do some good work and just remember that it is too easy.